And as you're taking your spot, would you please turn to Mark chapter 15 that, Bre that Ben read earlier this morning. The unparalleled humiliation of Christ, the Son of God in the hands of the Roman soldiers, was the focus in our study of God's Word in the previous verses. The most scandalizing component of the hideous treatment that Jesus received by these mortal men was not the physical abuse, as perverted and excruciating as that indeed was. But it was the high-handed mockery, the taunting Jesus, the Son of God, as simply a jester king that was far more appalling. This is the creator of the universe, and he has been reduced to a prisoner of war and made fun of, mocked, spit upon, beat. Yet, we see this happening, and the question may come to some of our minds, God the Father seemingly did nothing on behalf of His beloved Son. Why? Why would that be so? Is that true? Certainly He saw all that was taking place. This morning, we are poised to carefully examine the final six hours of Jesus' life. They are spent in the most insufferable form of torture and execution ever invented. The Roman statesman and philosopher Cicero entitled it, The Cruelest and Most Hideous Punishment Possible. However, the Gospel of Mark does not fixate on what could easily be a descriptive analysis of violent horror. What what will we see this morning as we come to the cross of Golgotha? We're going to carefully consider, first of all, the details of the murder of the innocent Christ. Secondly, the diversity of the mockers of the dying Christ. And thirdly, the death of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And finally, the defining moments at the death of Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. No place in scripture is our full attention demanded as it is when we come into your gospels and see your son Jesus Christ on the cross. And Father, I confess and I know many in this assembly have seen it over and over again and we had grown at points in our life where it was a symbolic a moment of drama. It was uh, a moment of emotion. Uh, but we knew very little about it. Lord, please teach us this morning. Please go far beyond my meager ability to teach and speak. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will speak through your word to our hearts. And you will show us your son and show us you as a sovereign father. And you will speak to us about who we are. Lord, may your word convict us. May it grip us and change us. Thank you that we have it. And thank you that we can gather in your presence to worship you. Fill us with you, please, Lord. Amen. We begin with the details of the murder of Christ. The first detail in verse 24. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. The casting of lots for final possession. If we go to Matthew's account, it says, Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. If we go to John chapter 19, the parallel account to this, we get a bit more specification here. It says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. 
It was prophesied 1,000 years earlier by King and Psalm writer David in Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18. There we read, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. The spoils obviously go to the Quaternion. This is the execution squad of four soldiers under the leadership of the centurion. They were assigned to maintain vigilance at the cross until the last criminal had died. This was to guard against any interference to comfort the dying men or to provide a rescue attempt. Compensation for this gruesome quartet included the last personal possessions remaining on the victim they put to death. Casting lots. What is it? Uh, Is it rolling dice? Is it drawing straws? Flipping coins as a rock, paper, scissors. It isn't specified here. And, and there are different uh, es- guesses as to what was taking place. But one thing we do know, it gave the guards a little more entertainment under these morbid circumstances. And it left the distribution of the possessions up to chance or to the gods, to those who practiced it. But have you noticed the precision of this prophecy The soldiers fulfilled both. And perhaps you hadn't seen them separately, but they divided Jesus' garments among them, but they also cast lots to determine who would get the one-piece tunic without tearing it into several pieces. It's a small detail, but it only buttresses the confirmation of God's active sovereignty on this scene. They divided them among them, the pieces they could, and for the one cherished one piece, they cast lots. At this point, Jesus now has no earthly possession. Though he had created the entire earth, the universe, according to John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1, Jesus created, and as God he is, as Genesis 14, 22 says, he is the possessor of heaven and earth. He is now hung out to die with nothing earthly to his name. The crucifixion process begins. The second detail. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. Jewish time begins at 6 o'clock in the morning, 6 a.m. And the hours progress then. The crucifixion begins, therefore, at 9 a.m. in the morning, the third hour. Now the explanation of the punishing execution is very brief. Three words. They crucified him. Mark's Roman audience would have known the horrors of crucifixion very well. As mentioned last week, it is estimated that there were 30,000 crucifixions in Judea during the lifespan of Christ. 30,000 of these. In fact said one commentator, after the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, so many Jewish rebels were killed by crucifixion that the Romans ran short of lumber to make crosses. It was everywhere. Next, we have the contested charges. The contested charges are displayed. And we will talk about why they would be contested. It says in verse 26, and the inscription of his accusation was written above. The king of the Jews. Uh, A fellow by the name of Lane explains, on the way to the execution site, a condemned man wore or had carried before him a wooden board whitened with chalk on which letters were written or burned in specifying his crime. The notice attached to the cross on which the tortured body of Jesus hung bore in black or red letters on the white background the inscription, King of the Jews. Now John's gospel also tells us that it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin for clear, diverse communication to anyone who passed by. Everyone would have been able to read exactly what was charged here. And all four of the gospels give the King of the Jews. But Luke begins with, this is 
Matthew starts, this is Jesus, and John writes, Jesus of Nazareth. So if we complete the inscription together, it would have read on that sign, at that time, at 9 a.m. that morning, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And there's much political in that. Nothing good came out of Nazareth, according to the Jews. And yet that is what Pilate insisted be put on there. He is the King of the Jews. The Jews would have none of it. Look at John's gospel. Here we get a fuller understanding of this piece of the crucifixion puzzle. John 19, verses 19 through 22. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews. But he said, I am the, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And then finally, he was counted with common criminals. Verse 27, with him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, robbers, what are these? Robbers is a word that can mean a criminal petty thief. Or it can mean as violent as a murdering insurrectionist, a rebel. Petty, thieves, petty thievery was not a capital crime before the court of Rome. But violent rebels against the state. They received the death penalty. So these two men were likely insurrectionists against the rule of Rome whose rebellion had resulted in killings. Now we run here to Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9 and verse 12 and we see what this means when it says the scripture was fulfilled. Isaiah 53 verse 9 And they made his grave with the wicked. In verse 12 Because he poured out his soul into death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Several centuries, 500 years plus, this had been written by David. Contrary to many examples of art, Jesus' cross was no bigger and no taller than the other two. He was simply in the middle of it all. No greater prestige by any means. The scripture was fulfilled, writes Mark. And the significance of the fulfilled prophecy we see later on in Acts chapter 4, verse 26 through 28, recounts this episode after the cross, after the resurrection. Verse 26, The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles. Then the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever their filthy, dirty, violent minds had in mind. No. It says they were gathered to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. It is one of the most amazing statements of Scripture about the sovereignty of God. As Joseph had told his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. Let's examine now the diversity of mockers of the dying Christ. Verse 29. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days. Those in the crowd, the crowd itself, they are mocking in ignorance. It says they blasphemed him. That means to vilify, to defame, to rail on him, to revile him. In the NASB, the translation says they were hurling abuse at Christ as he hung on the cross. Psalm 22, verses 7 through 8 says, All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. The accusations that are made by the crowd at that moment are simply false charges and misinformation 
in their most blatant form. It stems from something Jesus had said three years earlier. He said, so that we read in John chapter 2, so the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. It was then that they twisted, they misinterpreted, and it became a major plank in the hollow charges made against Christ three years later in his trial before the Sanhedrin. Mark 14, which we studied a few weeks ago. Jesus is before the Sanhedrin. He has been arrested and pulled out of the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been roughly treated and thrown into this false kangaroo court of things in Mark chapter 14, 56 through 59. This is that trial proceeds in verse 15 it says or excuse me 56 for many bore false witness against him but their testimonies did not agree then some rose up and bore false witness against him saying we heard him say I will destroy this temple made with hands and within three days I will build another made without hands but not even then did their testimony agree? See the twist they made of this so they can make this accusation against Christ. Then this crowd began taunting the sovereign. They had, save yourself and come down from the cross. It's the word sozo. It means to deliver or to heal or to save. Pay close attention please here. From the earliest days of Jesus' ministry, when the devil tempted him in the wilderness, right up to these final hours, with the people jeering and chiding him, one of the most strategic temptations of Satan has been to cause Jesus to forsake all the suffering and the humiliation and forego his horrifying death on the cross. Jesus could have easily obliged and saved himself. But he will not. And this temptation even ratchets up another notch. Now it is mockery championed by those who poisoned the crowd. Verse 31, those who poisoned the crowd. In in Mark 15, 11, we read, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd that they would demand Barabbas, that they would want Jesus crucified. They poisoned the crowd. Verse 31, this morning, likewise the chief priests also mocking among themselves at the scribes said he saved others himself he cannot save let the Christ the king of Israel descend now from the cross that we may see and believe the religious elite and experts in the Jewish law have now sunk to the same low life plane as the common passerby and the reprobate murderers who are being crucified at this very moment their mockery is the same With the chief priests and scribes, they are playing it like an inside joke. It says they mocked among themselves. He saved others. And at this moment, they couldn't really care less about that. He cannot save himself. He is incapable to sozo his own life, they say. Do you hear the ironic truth that they are shouting out in their mockery? Jesus had already told his disciples... For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. The scorners are right. In order to save others, He cannot save Himself. 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 through 6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself a ransom for all, To be testified in due time. A ransom. Seeing is believing. Taunt the priests and the scribes. But they would never have faith. They would never believe. When he resurrected three days later. They did everything they could. To reject, deny and hide this glorious truth. Then we read. Even those who were crucified with him. Reviled him. Those now crucified before the crowd. Those crucified before the crowd. And this is really an amazing moment on the cross. 
Matthew 27, verses 42 through 44. The parallel passage. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he has said, I am the son of God. And even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. But Luke 23, and and we will not spend a lot of time here, but we see the Holy Spirit work in the most amazing way in the midst of this mockery. Luke adds this to the whole spectrum of what happens. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him saying, Do you not even fear God? Seeing you are under the same condemnation. And we indeed justly. For we received the due reward of our deeds. But this man. He's done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus. Lord. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him. Assuredly I say to you. Today you will be with me in paradise. Is that not mind blowing? Between these two robbers hung a man who was so badly beaten, uh, Scripture says he couldn't even hardly be recognized. He is covered with blood. He is exhausted. He is pinned to that wooden cross and has no ability to move, seemingly, even to touch any part of his body or to any way rotate. He is fastened. He is under the control fully of these executors. And yet that man, dying beside him, looked at him, and what did he see? He saw a king. Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. He saw the Lord. He called him Lord. He saw a man that was not finished that day. He said, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. He knew it wasn't over. There, that is a sermon in itself, and, and I know that's happened many times. I love that portion, but we cannot escape it because it is one of the most beautiful highlights that occur in this six-hour period of time. But how did he see that? The Holy Spirit gave him recognition. And that's how any of us see Christ. It is not because we've read enough, or we've become humble enough, or intelligent enough, or spiritual enough to finally see Jesus. It's when His Holy Spirit grants us the recognition of who this is, the Lord and King. After three hours of excruciating pain, nailed by steel spikes to the wooden cross, and humiliation from the highest to the lowest of society, it arrives. The death of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We hear the suffering cry of Christ. The suffering cry of Christ in 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. You see, this is midday by Jewish time. It is high noon. That is how God works. The sun is now at its brightest and most direct position. And Jesus has been nailed to the cross for three hours and suddenly God breaks forth. But it is not as one might have expected. It's darkness. It's skotos. It means obscurity, a shadiness. It's not skotinos, which means opaque, dark, absolutely pitch dark. There was something there that was a darkness and things were just in total disarray and confusion. God has expressed himself at this moment. It says over the whole land. Now land here can refer to the entire earth. Uh, the historians Tertullian and Origen both report that this darkness covered Israel even on throughout the entire Roman Empire for this three hour period of time. How could this be? How could this be? Uh, Another question. Thinking back on Genesis. Does light require the sun or stars? Light was created by the Son of God when? Many of you know. The first day of creation. The sun 
was not created until when? The fourth day of creation. Does God need the sun? Does he need the stars? Does he need an extraneous source? No. God gives light and he removes light when and how he desires. And that's what he did on this moment. Some have said it's an eclipse of some kind. I do not know. He did not need it. He created light out of nothing. And he can remove it when he chooses. What was this time of darkness? Was it the absence of God and leaving at that moment? Was it the express power of Satan? No. It was a time of God's great judgment. God's judgment in darkness is found in Isaiah. It's found in Joel. Zephaniah 1, 14-15 says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of desolation and devastation, a day of darkness and gloominess, the day of clouds and thick darkness. Amos. 8, 9 says, And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. That is when Jesus cries out at the ninth hour with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it is shouted in Aramaic, the common tongue of the people. The common and the elite would hear and understand Jesus' loud and strong proclamation. Writing from a psalm of David written a thousand years earlier, it is written, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, wrote the psalmist. Jesus has uttered that word with power. God has come in judgment. Not upon the Roman soldiers crucifying his son. Not upon the Pharisees and the scribes mocking his son. He has not come upon judgment upon the foolish bystanders or the bitter criminals also hanging there. God comes in judgment upon his son. Upon his son. Christ is under the curse. Less than 18 hours earlier, do you realize, in pleading, in prayer, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus cried out to Yahweh, Abba, Father. The nearness, the intimacy, Father to Son. God comforted. God sustained him in that moment. His only Son was cared for. But now on the cross, Christ calls out for the first and only time recorded in Scripture, My God, my God, now Yahweh brings wrath, just wrath, eternal wrath, unimaginable wrath upon the suffering Messiah. Why? Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, For he God the Father made him who knew no sin, Christ, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ became sin. Isaiah 59, verse 2 through 3. We see why the separation. It says there, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, then your fingers with iniquity, and your lips have spoken lies, then your tongue has muttered perversity. That is a description of the accounting of Christ at that moment. He has taken those lies, that perversity, everything upon himself, and that's what, Christ, what God sees in his Son. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. But this sinks even harder to the heart. 
Isaiah 53 verses 10 through 11 it says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him and to put him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and he will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. As he will bear their iniquities, he has borne our iniquities. The filthiest moment of your life the most rebellious arrogance of your heart. If you trust in this Savior, He takes it upon Himself and has paid it completely. As if it is His and it has been removed from us. Wrote one, one commentator, he said, that separation was not one of nature or essence. The Lord Jesus never ceased to be the second member of the Trinity. Rather it was a separation. Of the loving communion. He had eternally known. With the Father. There had never been a moment. Like this. In all of creation. And before. First Peter 3. is written there. For Christ also. Suffered once for sins. The just. For the unjust. That he might bring us to God. That's why he does this. That he can bring filthy, mortal, weak men and women like you and I. He can bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Then we see the sarcastic contempt toward Christ. The sarcastic contempt toward Christ in verse 35. Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he is calling for Elijah. And then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and they offered it to him to drink saying, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to take him down. The sour wine was offered. It was a thirst quenching kind of a common thing that would have possibly been there even for the soldiers. In some versions it reads wine vinegar or vinegar. Uh, The question sometimes is offered, was it a gesture of mercy or was it to prolong his agony? We don't know. But it was offered at that moment, this cry for Elijah was just to taunt him. They knew from history of their scriptures that the Messiah would be preceded by an Elijah type figure. Perhaps this would be part of the story. They muse, they joke, they they, they mock him. And then we see the sovereign conclusion by Christ. The sovereign conclusion by Christ. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he breathed his last. Again, here he is. He is crying out with what is in in Greek there a megas phone. Megas is where we get the word megaphone. Mega, giant, huge, powerful voice. Crucifixion would often last for two or three days until exhaustion and suffocation succumbed its prisoner. In the final hours, the victims of crucifixion were often reduced to lethargy, delirium, and silence. There was nothing left to fight the power of death. Finally, they succumbed. But that was not Jesus. He suffered on that cross until his work was accomplished. He laid down his life. It was not taken from him. He ended it when he chose and where he chose. You see, he had set his face like flint toward Jerusalem several months back when he determined the purpose to be on this cross, in this city, on this specific day, and to die at this precise time, 3 p.m., as the Passover lambs were also sacrificed in the nearby temple. Everything is done with precision, sovereignty, and power. Jesus kept it alive until 3, and he closed it down at that point. The work was finished. Here is final words recorded by Luke and John in his completion of life. Luke 23, verse 46. Then when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
And having said this, he breathed his last. And John 19.30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. This moment of sovereign control of his very own death is sobering. Uh, This is far more than any kind of a suicidal bent. It is a voice of one who has the power of life and death. Jesus told the Pharisees many months earlier in John chapter 10, As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Therefore, my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. And this command I have received from my Father. What comfort, what confidence we can have in such a Savior. And then the defining moments, the defining moments at the death of Jesus. Verse 38, Then the veil of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. One pastor called this divine vandalism. The vandalism of the veil. This was God's veil. This was his idea, his curtain. Some sources say it was as high as 80 feet. Others say 30 feet. Some say it was 4 inches thick. Different details. But I tell you details of this specific veil. Now in Herod's temple at this particular time are very sketchy. We don't know. If we needed to know, the scriptures would tell us. The point is, why did God destroy his own prescribed veil by tearing it from top to the bottom? Exodus 26:33 reads, and these are words from God and instruction for the tabernacle, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark, of the, t- the ark of the Testimony in there behind the veil. The veil, listen, the veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. You see, the main purpose of the veil in the temple was separation. It was separation of the people from the holiest place of God's presence in the inner temple holiest of holies. God's destruction of the veil from top to bottom at the precise moment of Christ's death on the cross declares to us that the old covenant way of access to God has been replaced by the Son of God's eternal and sufficient sacrifice. It has removed His people's sins forever. And we can come boldly to the throne of God because that veil no longer exists for us. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to settle in. I want you to stay awake. I want you to pay very close attention to what we see here. This is so much a part of the passages that we've been looking at. Hebrews 10 verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, Christ, he said, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, To do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, 
I have come to do your will, O God, from the Son to the Father. He takes away the first, the old law, the old covenant, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant. This is the new covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is no remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He consecrated for us through the veil, that is His flesh. That's it. The veil was ripped in two because as Christ died on that cross, we enter to the holiest of holies, the most near that, that one could ever be with God our Creator, our holy, holy, holy Father. Through the veil, the flesh of His Son. That is what is happening on the cross at this moment. That is the first of the defining moments. Let's look at the second. The confession of the crucifier. So when the centurion who stood opposite him, opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. We have a professional executor for the state. He had presumably killed many, many men through his professional career. And he has risen to the rank of a leader of a hundred. He's a centurion. Yet in all his days, he has never witnessed anyone go through death like this. He's never seen it. It blows him away. This pagan Roman soldier... Listen to this, this precious detail. This pagan Roman soldier is the first person recorded in the Gospel of Mark to acknowledge Jesus as a Son of God. God the Father had stated this at Jesus' baptism. This is my Son. And at His glorification on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my Son. You know who else? Demons. Satanic minions had proclaimed him as the Son of God. Several moments at, at times of healing, at times of exorcism. But no man, no woman had done so. To Mark's Roman audience, would this not have been a strong testimony? A pagan Roman centurion. And then the third moment is the women at watch. We conclude with these last two verses. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the less and of Joseph, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is powerful. We see so much demand for women's rights, for feminism in our culture right now. Brothers, look at these women. At this point, the men disciples, except for one, John, have vanished into hiding. This amazing group of faithful women are now watching the sordid crucifixion from a distance. So important was this that Mark gives names. He says, Mary Magdalene, she was from the village of Magdala along the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. You know what her connection is with Jesus? 
Jesus had delivered seven demons out of that woman. She owed Jesus everything. Then there was Mary, the mother. She is distinguished by her sons, James the Less, who was an actual disciple of Jesus, and Salome. It appears that she was James and John's mother, two of the disciples, and the wife of Zebedee. They had ministered to Christ, it says. They had cared for his needs. Minister is the Greek word where we get the title deacon. It means one who serves. And, and I would say our deacons in our church here fit that title very well. And these women were outstanding in fulfilling that role for Jesus Christ. They served him. They took care of the needs that he had. And now they are watching and they are waiting. They will watch carefully where Jesus' body is put. They will be the first to be on sight after Jesus' resurrection. And they will be the first to announce his resurrection from the dead to this dead world. That was, those are women with courage and power. And many other women, says, certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him with their substance. Those are the women mentioned in Luke 8. It's perhaps, it, it could have been some of them that were there too, because they came out of Galilee with him. And now, now the curtain closes at this point in the scriptures. Christ is dead. No one at that point in this narrative seems to know that there is any hope. But he has died. And we know from the scriptures, even to reading to this section, what has been accomplished. He has taken the place of sinners. He has substituted himself in our place and paid the price of our sin. For all who will trust, for those who will repent and believe, your sins are gone. They have been paid for in full. And you have eternal life. Now, I'm not going to go much further than that because what happens in three days confirms and establishes what I'm talking about here. I want you to to read. I want you to think about this. and, And let your heart and mind meditate on these scriptures. There's more ahead. But I want to finish with Jesus' prayer. In John chapter 17, turn to to that in closing, if you would. John 17, verse 19. John 17, verse 19. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself. This is Jesus praying. That they also may be sanctified by the truth. And he there is speaking about the apostles. Now look at verse 20. I do not pray for these, these apostles alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, for that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. This was his prayer. And this is what he accomplished on that cross. Now those things can happen. We can be established with him. We can enjoy eternally uh, praise and glory and worship of our God someday when he calls us home. Some of you have refused that. You've, you've just kept it off. Uh, some of you may have even played with it or, or even given the profession. But if you sense from what the scripture is saying today that you do not know this Savior and he does not know you, repent and believe. Trust in what these scriptures say, that you may have eternal life. But Jesus' prayer also tells us some very important things. 
it tells us that much of what he accomplished and what he is doing in us and in the church is so that the world will know him. So they will see him. Some of, of, some of us have muted that profession. Some of us have muted the proclamation of the gospel. Pull it back. Let this ring until your day is done. Until God takes you and brings you home. But don't hold back. If it's been hard, forget it. Let go of it. Your purpose in life is to make Christ known. Anything you do less than that, glorifying Him and making Him known, will be gone. Glorify Him in your family, in your marriage, at your place of work, on the streets, where you go to shop, to the waitress, to the checkout person, to the cousin that hates God, to the in-law that doesn't like you. Make Christ known. That is our purpose, to glorify God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your Christ, for your Messiah, for your Son that you sent on our behalf. Lord, it is, as we unfold your plan, your timing, your sovereignty, your power, your compassion, your humility, your long-suffering, you are beyond our greatest hope and imagination. And yet, Lord, we know that unless you grant us a heart like you did the one thief on the cross, we will not see you. So please reveal yourself to us. Fill us with your spirit. Show us you. And Lord, please use us. Use us so that the world will know that you are God and that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, and that they must answer to you someday. Please use us, Lord, to to build the kingdom of God for your glory and for your honor. Thank you for your word, Lord. Save those who are lost, please, Father. And Father, just in in closing, uh, thank you for the three people that will come this morning and share the change that you have made in their lives. Please give them strength. Lord, please anoint them with your spirit that young or older, those words will penetrate our hearts and give glory to Christ. In your name we pray, amen.